is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. South Africa is still offering us plenty of chilly weather, making this the perfect season to curl up with a good book. So, good thing that you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. And I'm your host, Paige Nick. For the next hour, we'll be joined by reviewers and authors sharing what's on their to-read pile right now, so you can line up your perfect lockdown entertainment for the next few weeks. Our first book is Malcolm Gladwell's latest bestseller, Bomber Mafia, reviewed by Beverly Roos Miller. Bombs away, Bev. The Bomber Mafia poses a typical Malcolm Gladwell question. He loves offering complex choices. What if you were fighting a vast and terrible war and you had two choices? First, the use of precision bombing that would destroy key targets, industry and communications, and therefore save civilian lives. And the second, to use a mass bombing strategy that deliberately creates a scorched earth, obliterating everything in its way, women, children, towns and villages, yet might produce such despair that it could shorten the war. You may recognize, of course, that this is exactly the question that arose when the Allies, led by the Americans, faced the Pacific War. These were the two actual options open to them in confronting Japan. Moral bombing to save civilians against morale bombing, deliberate mass destruction. Bestseller Gladwell is the master of capturing the public imagination. The tiny Canadian writer originally wrote this script for a podcast, resulting in a fluent, rapid read. So who were the Bomber Mafia? A small group, perhaps only a dozen or so, of rebellious airmen hunkered down in Alabama, who began to think about a modern warfare strategy very different to the old Army and Navy traditions. What if you could develop a high-altitude plane that could fly in daylight over enemy lines rather than at night, and by doing so could provide such precision bombing that you could, in their words, drop a bomb into a pickle barrel from 30,000 feet? Impossible? Well, not really. Enter the Norden bomb site. Like me, you may never have heard of this 55-pound heavyweight, but it was the third most expensive project in America's World War II, the first two being the B-29 bomber and the second, the Manhattan Project. This book is as much about the extraordinary, in some ways incredible characters involved, as the results of the fight about the morality, or lack of it, of war. Larger than life, brilliant and occasionally psychopathic, their efforts would change warfare for good. There was General Haywood Hansel, who promised the Allies that he could precision bomb Japan using the B-29 and the Norden bomb site. But the ferocious jet wind stream over Mount Fuji was unknown to them and ruined that plan. Instead, General Curtis LeMay was ordered to take over and launched a vast incendiary bombing campaign, including newly discovered napalm over large civilian areas of Japan. He specifically planned to terrorize the country into surrender. And by July, LeMay was bombing minor Japanese cities that had no strategic important industry at all, just people living in tinderboxes. More people died from these bombing raids than in the two atomic bombs dropped shortly after. 
the maid felt that he had done the job so successfully that they were in fact unnecessary. In the end, the real question is about what means should be used to shorten a war. Shorten at what cost? And who pays that cost? There is still controversy about Britain's bomber Harris and his relentless bombing of Europe. Did it really work? Well, it turns out that people are surprisingly resilient. During the Blitz bombing, Londoners just doubled down on their resolve, as did the Boers in response to the British scorched earth policy in South Africa. And an enemy with little or nothing left to lose is a dangerous foe. The bomber mafia is about a devastating war, but it is not gloomy reading. He leaves us with hope, which is quite a feat, given the subject matter. I found it fascinating, pacey and provocative. It's my all-time favorite Gladwell book. I've always been a Gladwell fan. I recently picked up an oldie of his at the Milneton flea market called Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, whatever that's supposed to mean. But the truth is I found it an utterly absorbing read. He uses interesting and relatable case studies and stories from the world around us to illustrate his theories on life, the universe, and psychology. Next, we're joined by iconic food writer and reviewer, Philippa Sheffitz, telling us about a book that's just launched in June called Meat by Annaline Pinar, best-selling author of Burkhorse with a Twist, published by NB Publishers. The rise of vegans and vegetarians in this last decade has been stratospheric. You can barely swing a cat on social media without bumping into a meat-free Monday post. So, this is an interesting title to come out of 2021, and it proves that there are still plenty of us out there who really enjoy our meat. I'm interested to hear what you made of it, Philippa. Meet the Ultimate Guide by Annaline Pinar, Human and Rousseau. With the avalanche of vegan cookbooks, the ready availability of plant-based burgers and sausages, and the emergence of lab-grown cultured chicken meat from California to Singapore, plus Israel promising lab-grown kosher pork, it's brave to publish a cookbook on meat. Frankie Fenner, a well-respected butcher in Cape Town, advocates meat in moderation, ethically sourced and cooked with care. In Meat, the Ultimate Guide, Annaline Pinar shares recipes and information for making the most of meat. Annaline grew up on a farm, was a student at the former South African Meat Board and today is a farmer's wife. She praises her local master butcher, Miguel Consalves of the Bridestroom Country Butchery and praises all farmers who apply good, sustainable farming practices. Miguel, who is Portuguese, introduced her to picana, a particular cut of beef popular in Portugal, Spain, and Brazil. Annaline marinates and dry cures it in the recipe Bolton Cured Picana. It is barbecued whole or oven-baked or cut and threaded onto skewers. She smokes marinated brisket in a kettle braai. There are pot roasts, a Moroccan stew, and an easy recipe for ribeye steaks with coriander and za'atar, plus all the favorites from moussaka and lasagna to hamburger pâtés. The pork chapter includes an irresistible pork belly with crackling. The lamb and mutton section follows the beef, a stunning lamb pie with golden sour cream pie crust, good curries and a recipe for ruti, a leg of lamb is marinated in buttermilk for tenderness. Avoid meat tenderizers and acids such as wine and vinegar, advises the author. 
Use buttermilk or yogurt that break down the connective tissue and tenderize the meat. Annaline gives a recipe for Portuguese flame-grilled leg of lamb, the pictures on the cover. Another recipe that uses buttermilk is pulled lamb or denonflés, a recipe given to a mother by a Dutch family. Whole lamb shanks are baked in a red wine pan sauce. The pork chapter includes an irresistible pork belly with crackling, buttermilk marinade again for a pork neck roll literally injected with an apple cider marinade. A dad's recipe. He was often asked to make the poikies and spit brides for festivals and schools in their small farming community. Oma Hanke's recipe for kayangs made from pork belly. The crispy crackling sprinkled on large spread homemade bread are heavenly. From a stuffed free-range chicken to sticky buffalo wings grilled on the braai, duck breasts with port and cherry sauce, oven-baked citrus and honey duck, and a very festive turkey. Offal is not neglected, perhaps not for the faint-hearted who turn to the game and venison section, opting for Irland carpaccio with citrus salad or venison pie. A very good and useful chapter on marinades, sauces, seasoning and pickles ends the book. The book is user-friendly, a clear layout for easy-to-follow recipes and plenty of photographs taken by Annaline herself. It follows Annaline's first cookbook, Boracos with a Twist, also published by Human and Rousseau. Thank you, Philippa. That was a review of Meat by Annaline Pinnock. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, brought to you with great bookie excitement by exclusive books. Next up, we go back to Beverly Royce Miller's To Read List. She isn't done for the month yet. Bev joins us again with another excellent read, Searching for Sarah by Dominique Malherber recently published by Tafelberg Books. This fascinating historical biography come memoir uncovers a literary love story. I want to begin by saying that Searching for Sarah by Dominique Malherbe is just a wonderful read, engaging on so many levels, a passionate account and journey by the author to find the real story behind her great-aunt Sarah Goldblatt as the woman who loved Langenhoven and whom he made his literary executor to the surprise of the sedate societies of the 1930s. Langenhoven was a giant figure in the history of Afrikaans literature, not only the man who had pinned De Stem, but an affable man of many parts, author and journalist, politician, humorist, a little in the line of Mark Twain, with his lovable stories of Harry the Elephant still enjoyed by young children today. Sarah was born in 1890 into an immigrant Jewish family, and the young girl turned out to be a clever, hard-working and gifted linguist. In 1913, still in her early 20s, she joined Langenhoven in Oetzorn to assist him as the editor of the local newspaper. He was 16 years older than her, married to an older widow who already had several children and with whom he had one daughter. Well, you can see where this is going. Their relationship was neither conventional or trivial. It was a loving, long and widely recognized partnership within both of their families. Sarah was an intimate of the Langenhovens and more importantly, secured the huge legacy of him after his death. His book sold over two million copies, due at least in part to her efforts. 
She was also a talented writer, the first woman to publish poetry in Afrikaans, a formidable lobbyist for the language and yet considered difficult, that prickly word often used to describe talented and clear-minded women. Dominique Malheba grew up hearing about her famous aunt Sarah. She also heard briefly the rumor that Sarah had had Langenhoven's child, a boy who may have grown up to be a doctor. Sarah had allegedly given him up in the mid-1920s, a common fate of unwed mothers. The author has certainly put in their hard hours in tracking down as much information as possible in her quest to find the true story of her remarkable aunt, often deliberately downplayed in accounts of Langenhoven's life. One of the better aspects of this book is the calling out of the controversial writer John Canamere, who wrote the Langenhoven biography, as well as that of J.M. Kutzeer. The hard-working Canamere held a prurient interest in the gossipy aspects of his subjects, despite his own private life being extremely murky. Worse, he had a habit of massaging the facts to fit his own ends. Dominique includes detailed examples where Canamere either ignored the extensive evidence of the close relationship or else deliberately left out information that would have placed Sarah in a favourable light. There were hundreds of affectionate and personal letters between Sarah and Langenhoven in archives, also a number that his family would not release to Dominique. This was, I think, a mistake. We owe nothing to the dead other than the truth. We also owe that truth to the living. Private lives do matter if honestly examined in understanding and amplifying greatness. As a part biographer of a great poet, I am well aware of that. Above all, though, the best part of searching for Sarah is simply the quest by Dominique herself. As for the missing child, well, I feel that the jury is still out on that one, but in the end it doesn't really matter. This is the story of a strong young woman who loved greatly, was loved in return, and whose legacy in the history of South African languages is to be celebrated. I can thoroughly recommend Searching for Sarah, The Woman Who Loved Langenhoven by Dominique Malherbe. Because this is proudly fine music radio, we always punctuate our reviews with some great music. You may have noticed that every month on this show, our brilliant musical director, Rick Everett, themes the music around the month or the season we're in. But this month, Rick has created a different musical theme for the show. Take a listen to the tracks we feature in the show and see if you can guess what the theme is. Here's our first track. It's called Give Me the Simple Life and it's played by saxophonist Mike Lartz. Mm-hmm. 
Any guesses what the musical theme is yet? No? Don't worry. We've got another track coming up after this next segment, and we'll share the theme with you at the end of the show. You're listening to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, and I'm your host, Paige Nick. And of course, none of this would be possible without our friends and exclusive books. Now we welcome our nature books expert, John Hanks. This month, John interviews the managing editor of Strake Nature, Travel and Heritage, Rolin Theron. In a recent program, it's been my pleasure to review books from the Strake Nature collection. And without exception, they've all been excellent productions. For this program, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Rolene Turon, who is currently the managing editor of Strake Nature Imprint at Penguin Random House, with considerable editorial experience, including working on converting field guides to those mobile applications that many of us like to use. So, by way of introduction, I'm going to start by asking you, what is Strake Nature? Thanks, John. I suppose that's a good question. As you said, it's an imprint of Penguin Random House, and it's also the leading specialist natural history publisher in Southern Africa, as well as East Africa. We we publish a considerable number of books for that market, and it's associated with best-selling and very highly regarded field guides, as well as other publications. I'm sure if some of your listeners have visited our microsite, straightnature.co.za, they would probably be very familiar with our books and may even own some. There are more than 300 books on that website that are for sale. I've looked at it a lot, and I think it's absolutely exceptional what you have available. The the pocket guides, I think, are excellent. They easily fit in your pockets when you're out in the field. For example, The Birds of Zambia is a great example. Beautiful text, colour photographs. But interestingly, 782 birds in Zambia, but only 425 in the book. How do you select the birds you put in, and how do you check for accuracy of all that information you have? Good question. You know, we do use very specialist authors, and they're usually leading authorities in their field. So we do rely on our authors to make the initial selection. Those ID guides that you, the pocket guides, are relatively small in size and usually around 160 pages. So we are always a bit limited in terms of what we can put in there. We rely on the author, as I said, and the guiding principle is that the books should contain species, whether it's a bird or plant, whatever the theme is of the book, that can be commonly observed. There's no point in giving someone a guidebook to go into a national park or or to go and look at birds and they can't find those birds, they can't identify them. So the author is encouraged to use birds that are easily observed in the wild uh, or that are commonly observed. But of course, there's also room to add birds that are rare or or not commonly observed. I like the new topics you have. I got one in front of me now called Skull Dudgery. It's an ID guide to the skulls of southern East African mammals. Now, this must be the first of its kind. Did you suggest this as a topic or was this the, the suggestion from the authors Chris and Matilda Stewart? book is part of a series of very of fun and quirky quick ID guides. So they're about 50 pages long and quite small. The authors here, Chris and Matilda Stewart, who've done a, several field guides for us, have suggested this particular topic. And of course, it was so quirky and unusual, as you say. We just knew it would be a, a winner. It would be a good book to publish. 
So, yes, so they suggest it. We may sometimes suggest topics to some authors. We might identify an author and ask them to write something for us, but often the authors come to us and say, this, we, what do you think of this book? Well, I so, think this is a great choice. I really must compliment you on it. But uh, in a new approach like this, how do you evaluate how successful it's been, just by the sales or by the feedback you get? Both, definitely both. So we will also do some market research beforehand to make sure that we are picking or choosing books that we think will really find favor amongst readers and that will be successful in the market. So we don't go into it blind, but we do evaluate afterwards. We will definitely, of course, sales will give us an indication of how successful the book has been, but we also use our reviews to see how the market has received the book and whether we've made the right decision or not. I think another great attraction of your list of publications are your children's books, um, the wonderful My First Book Of series, Birds, Mammals, Insects, as well as Kids Snakes book, which is the start of a new series. How have these been received? Very well. And very interestingly, they've done in- exceptionally well under lockdown. And I think it kind of proves the attraction of that series. They're probably about eight or ten of them in the series and they as you said mammals birds insects creepy crawlies seashore we've got birds on east africa as well in that series and our latest one is on frogs which includes the use of qr codes for children to access frog calls so they'd obviously have to ask their parents to help them but they can actually read and then listen to the call at the same time these books are in four languages they English, Afrikaans, Isikosa, as well as Isizulu. And so I think they really appeal to a very broad range of, 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 of children and the broad section of the market. They feature beautiful illustrations and visual cues as to what the diet, the size and the habit, habitat of each creature is. Well, congratulations on the production. One last point, I think... All of these books should be in every school library in South Africa. We need to promote an awareness of the extraordinary biodiversity we have there. And I don't know if you thought about this, but I would like to urge you, urge straight nature, to open up a section on your website where readers can make a donation to get these books out to schools as donations. Thank you very, very much for your time on this. Congratulations on superb production. Thank you very much, John, and thank you to your listeners as well. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, proudly sponsored by Exclusive Books. Sticking with non-fiction, please welcome Anthony Frijon into your radio as he tells us about a new release that will get the rugby player, fan and couch ref in your life very excited. It's a new memoir of rugby icon Skulk Berger Sr. and it's called Just a Moment. Just what was needed in these very testing times. More than a feel-good book, Just a Moment by Skulk Berger Sr., is about a man of many talents. From the outset, he understood that having a talent wasn't enough. One has to work at and develop that talent. And work at them is what this lovely man has certainly done. Why them? Because he has more than one talent. And why a lovely man? Because having read this book written with Michael Flismus, I would love to sit down with him and just be able to listen to him talk about his love of the land, farming, wine, motor racing, sailing, music, businessman, lover of the arts, and so much more. Certainly a Renaissance man. Oh yes, and there's rugby. Playing for the Springboks is a dream of many South African kids, achieved by very few.
and the journey to getting there requires more than just talent. It's physically hard, tough, requiring determination in the extreme. Interesting to read that becoming a Springbok wasn't at the top of the list of what he was aiming for in life, but through the good fortune of his playing ability, being noticed, he was offered a bursary to go to Stellenbosch University. One of the many questions I'd like to ask him, what path in life he might have taken if it weren't for rugby? Coming from the wrong side of the tracks in Pal, rugby was to open many doors. From an early age he understood what doing without meant. Growing up poor, a father scarred by wartime service, an alcoholic, unable to hold down a job. He recounts, At one stage we had social welfare looking after us, bringing clothing and food. His mother found work as a housekeeper at the local hospital. Growing up with nary a silver spoon in sight, Skalkberger has seized every opportunity presented to him, not forgetting the ones he has created for himself and turned them into successes. Skalk's life philosophy seems to be rooted on what he faced as a youngster. You come to realize that life isn't fair, that it comes with a lot of hardships. Either you learn how to deal with it, or it gets the better of you. There is never any self-pity, although he does go into detail about sitting at the bedside of his son Skalk Jr. in a coma, suffering from bacterial meningitis. The ups and downs of life are so much harder when you watch your children suffer them than when you go through them yourself. What shines through is his gratitude for the medical teams and friends who saw Skalk Jr. through to a full recovery and return to top-class rugby. His other two children, daughter Renee and son Tion, brought him much pride and parental heartache. I won't go into details here. Read the book. Through it all is his love for his wife, Myra, and their three children. Whatever path he had chosen, I have no doubt he would have made a success of it. He's just that sort of man. His incredibly wide circle of friends says much of the regard in which he is held. A big man with a big heart, big enough and man enough to admit that he can cry tears of joy and sadness. Just a Moment, written by Skalkberger Sr. and Michael Flismus, Published by Jonathan Ball. Recommended price, 275 Rand. An easy read, and so good for the soul. Right, are you ready to take another guess at what all the music tracks have in common on Book Choice this month? Here's our next clue. This track is called Darling, It's Wonderful, and it's sung by Virginia Lee. Darling, it's wonderful to be So wonderful 
Tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, brought to you by Exclusive Books, and I'm your host who loves to read and write, Paige Nick. Next, we go to Vanessa Levenstein's bookshelf with a really important book, particularly for the times we're living in. We're all dealing with the most right now. I don't think there's a person in South Africa who hasn't had their lives affected by loss of some kind over the last year or two. Grief is all around us, and this next title is here to help. It's called The Grief Handbook, and it's by Bridget McNulty. The only way out is through, writes author Bridget McNulty in her book, The Grief Handbook, A Guide Through the Worst Days of Your Life. This 150-page paperback was written by the author following the death of her own mother. This loss propelled her to want to help others navigate, as the subtitle says, the worst days of your life. In COVID-19, she writes, things become even more difficult. Many people are having to deal with not being able to say goodbye to the person they love or not being able to honour them with a funeral. It's clear that Bridget is a deeply caring person with a genuine desire to take readers by the hand, offer comfort, tell them it's okay to feel whatever they're feeling and to give them practical building blocks, activities to get through the painful days ahead. The author states she's not a grief expert and merely sharing her suggestions. After she looked for books like this one, and couldn't find any, she writes, But everything I read was either too dense and philosophical, or presume I wanted a religious interpretation of death and grief, which I didn't. Now, to pause here. I remember once doing a course at hospice, and the facilitator said, Everyone is an expert at their own mourning. And for me, the containment that religion offered was my lifeline. So the fact that this book doesn't reflect on religious mourning rites for me was lacking. However, you too are an expert on your own mourning process, as is the author, and so this angle may well work for you. Although the book follows the author's journey, it's clear she's researched her topic with quotes and references from, among others, Kubler-Ross and one of my personal favourites, C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. The book is divided into seven chapters, with practical tasks which the author found therapeutic, to her own healing. There are also letters to write, and then at the end what is beautiful and hopeful is a list you need to compile called Slices of Joy. For me the strongest part of this text was the author's ability to verbalise those deeply personal feelings that we don't share openly with the others. Some of her lines, this one in particular, felt like I was gazing into the mirror. I would walk around looking at older women and mentally calculate their age. If they looked older than my mum, I would get inexplicably angry at them for still being alive when she wasn't. It's this degree of honesty and gentle humour that I so loved about this book. Indeed, the only way out is through. For many, the grief handbook will be a valuable resource to get through it. 
The book is available through Take-A-Lot and independent bookstores. Thank you, Vanessa. The Grief Handbook by Bridget McNulty sounds like it would make a great gift for anyone going through a difficult time. You can get it online where 10 rand of every sale goes to hospice. It's also available at the Book Lounge and other great bookstores around the country. And you can find out more about it or where to buy it on www.bridgetmcnulty.com. I don't know about you, but I can't go very long without a bit of fiction in my life. So I'm pleased that Melvin Minow is joining us in the studio next to review The Committed by Viet Tan Guyen. It's a cliche to say some writers have ways with words, sentences, characters and plot, intrigue or no plot that is addictive to lily-livered readers like me. But I'm happy to subscribe a bit of hackneyed praise to Viet Tan Nguyen. I'm addicted to his writing. I'm also sure everyone who was smitten and seduced by the brilliant bite of his novel The Sympathizer, which won him a Pulitzer Prize, will be happy to know that his latest novel is more of the same. Titled The Committed, it presents itself as a sequel to the former, but you can fall right into Nguyen's whirlwind prose and madcap plot with this one and take the first as a prequel later. If The Committed is a heavier dose, it is a superlative treat to our obsession, indeed a commitment to excellent creativity. The Sympathizer is a classic anti-hero, a communist double agent of French-Vietnamese descent and an army captain in two minds. In the first book, he gets caught up in the political maelstrom of the expatriate Vietnamese community in the United States. In The Committed, we learn he, me and myself, is sometimes called Do Vang, no name in Vietnamese, and he finds himself in Paris. It is the early 1980s, he is still escaping the past Yet it and his blood brother, Bon, and memories of his former best friend man are ever present. The terror and double dealing of the past follows him. So does the constant questioning of belonging, of worth, of life's meaning. With whiffs of typical Graham Greene, Samuel Bellow, and yes, some Tarantino, the book takes on a thriller pace when he and Bon falls in with the drug underworld while also negotiating the charmed life with the Russian socialist intellectuals. It makes for a wow of an ironic, absurd mix as ethics, philosophy, fireside socialism and sewer capitalism clash in our anti-hero's world. Black humour shipped from satire to cinematic cartoonishness, while the witty clever prose sometimes falls over its own words of deliciousness. You gulp up the sentences, as they hustle along. Nguyen is a modern, even revolutionary writer who brings into play the outsider, the foreigner, the outlandish other, as central to the English-speaking reading novel tradition. In other words, Nguyen opens the world beyond. He does it with such panache that the old established English first world doesn't even realize that he had shifted the themes, moods and anxieties that determined the plots of most of what they read or prize. The colonial history of places like Vietnam, both Nguyen's country of birth and that of his central characters, has mostly been recorded and told by those who watched and warred from the West. He plunges in from the other side, and we are entertained, spellbound and prodded to think, under the spell of his whirlwind word mastery, the world may not be exactly as you thought, as this romp makes delightfully clear. The committed, 
like its predecessor, is a read which you can't seem to get enough of. Did I say addiction? We have another track next with Fascination, which is played by pianist Ken Higgins. As I mentioned earlier, all the tracks we're playing on Book Choice this month have something in common. Take a listen and see if you can figure out what it is. We'll share the answer at the end of the show. Before we get into our next review, I'd like to give a very special shout out to a very special listener, Gori Bars-Taylor. Hi, Gori. Gori created this show some years ago, and if you're listening, we send all our bookie love to you, Gori. We have you to thank for this great show and all the books we get to share with listeners around the country every month. Perhaps you'll join us next month as a guest reviewer and let us know what you're reading. I'm sure your fans would love to hear from you. Our reviewer, Beryl Eichenberger, chats about a book about life and how to tackle it head-on. This book is called It's Not a Big Thing in Life by Arnie Whitkin, and it has illustrations by the fabulous Dov Fedler and a foreword by Michael Holding. If, like me, you've kept Don't Sweat the Small Stuff and Tuesdays with Maury on your bookshelf, then Arnie Whitkin's It's Not a Big Thing in Life will be a welcome addition to these marvellously practical books. Arnie is what one would call a wise elder, a pioneer in the investment industry, and now, as a 77-year-old retiree, he is a speechwriter, public speaking coach, executive mentor, and coach. In this slim volume, which is as much a memoir as a wise guide, he covers more than 65 topics, 
for coping with those life challenges. While targeted at a younger generation, it is still so apt for any age and is a book that can be dipped into when the need arises. Whitkin has a life that he can be proud of, but it's not been without its ups and downs. How he's negotiated the highs and lows is the journey he takes us on, and by using the simple act of not sitting back and taking it all for granted, he has analyzed, explored, and noted, he's a great note-taker, his experiences. He focuses. This puts him on another level. And while simply written, it's like having a wise grandfather who listens, empathizes, and then offers a strategy. He hesitates to call it advice. It's something to be thought through, either taken on or discarded. But it is the recipient's responsibility to do just that and make the decision. Whitkin negotiates the reader through the many emotions we have to deal with. Like dealing with disappointment, it's all about acknowledging your feelings, which are real, accepting them and then negotiating with them so that you can get on with life effectively. If you can't negotiate with your feelings, you may stay disappointed for a very long time. I was reminded here by a lesson I learned from a book many years ago, that we choose the way we react to whatever comes our way, and that choice can be negative or positive. The key is to change the way we think, and in so doing, take charge of our emotions. That was from Your Erroneous Zones by Wayne M. Dyer from 1976. Another art that is sorely lacking in this busy age is listening. And without question, it is this skill that Whitkin has honed, thus refining his understanding of human nature. Whitkin dares to go into some more delicate subjects like relationships and sex and money, but his common sense approach is intelligent, accessible, and always practical. On taking risks, what have I got to lose? What's the worst thing that could happen if I take this action? Perhaps we've heard it all before, but Whitkin brings hindsight and experience together in a book that never preaches and always informs. He lightly peppers the pages with apt quotes and stories from the likes of Khalil Gibran, Maya Angelou, Nelson Mandela, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, and many more. He adds the quirky dog Fedler illustration, and there's a story there, and West Indian cricketer Michael Holding writes a warm forward that underlines Whitkin's love of cricket and what he's learned from that sport. Whitkin's gentle pen approaches every subject succinctly, bringing lasting meaning. He shows that being resilient is a key to overcoming adversity, that wherever we start from, we are responsible for our own lives, to recognize what is really important to us, to move on and face forward, and that being kind will bring untold joy. A small volume with big wisdom to keep close to you at all times. The book is Arnie Whitkin's It's Not a Big Thing in Life, Strategies for Coping, Considerations for My Adult Grandchildren, and it's self-published and available in all good bookstores. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to our first guest reviewer on the show this month. Amy Heidenrich is the author of the best-selling social media novel, Shame on You, and a book called The Pact. Her novels reflect the zeitgeist of our complex digital age. Amy lives in Joburg with her husband, Rice, and her three-year-old son, Zach, and she's currently working on her third novel, which we can't wait to review here. I've loved both of Amy's novels. But today, Amy's going to talk about a book she loves reading to her three-year-old son, Zach. What a wonderful book world this could be is a book by Mary Ann published by local children's publishing house Imaginary House and it's 
a beautifully illustrated and written story that at once marvels at our world and at the same time empowers children to um, help in a world that is troubled at the same time. So it's a really timely book in the sense that even though some of the children who might be reading this book with their parents might not understand all the issues facing us as South Africans at the moment, I do believe they do sense the wider emotions and stress um, of the situation and they, they do want to be kind and help others. So what this book achieves really nicely is giving children the tools to help in their own way. So the story starts off by marveling at the world. So we've got beautiful scenes of oceans and mountains and wonderful South African creatures that we all know and love and this girl marveling at them and also scenes of love between friends and parents and family. And then, so that is about how wonderful the world could be. Then in the second half of the book, it shows how the world can sometimes be a troubled place and how some people suffer from bullying or poverty and the earth isn't treated the way it should. And what this book does at the end is it shows how children, one step at a time, can help their world and be active social citizens. So definitely highly recommended for anyone who is reading picture books to their children. Also, just a wonderful gift um, to give to kids as well. As you know, Book Choice is lucky enough to be sponsored by Exclusive Books. The way we see it, any friend of books is a friend of ours. So I'm delighted to welcome Shakti Pillay. She's the online content curator and corporate sales administrator at Exclusive Books. This August, Exclusive Books welcomes the Arden Foodie to our Tasty Reads and Bunsy Made campaign right off the helm of homebrew, where we are celebrating our South African chefs and their cookbooks that exemplifies the cultural explosion of Mbanzi and excites the inner cook or baker in you. This pandemic that we are all living through has forced us to recalibrate our households during the hard lockdown, and one of the frenzied trends that enveloped the world was exploring the layers and dynamism of food and making friends with our pots and pans and stovetops. Social media was flooded with what I like to call foodography, where everyone was sharing their snaps of what they conjured up in the kitchen, from generationally old recipes, putting a spin on newly found dishes and making it your own. The implemented lockdown has us revisiting the art of cooking, which I have found to be a therapy that is much needed right now. One of the most fascinating experiences of cooking and being the receiver of a meal is the overwhelming sensorial elements that it invokes. Aside from the biological antennas of hearing the sizzle from your pan or seeing the burst of juices from the roast tomatoes or the anatomy of salt, sour, sweet, bitter taste, and the sensation of hot and cold, soft or coarse, and the aromas of spices releasing their oils, food holds memory, and that is what our Tasty Reads campaign highlights. From the diverse range of cookbooks on display, I have chosen four of my favorites. Heal by Melissa Dalfort is one of those cookbooks that exudes a zen-like calm and nourishment for the soul. Melissa highlights how food is more than a primary need for survival. It is an extension of our livelihood and feeds our mood, and relationships, and becomes a spiritual experience. She explains that food is about re-energizing not only our body, but our mind through her knowledge of Ayurvedic practice. 
So in this cookbook, there is a compilation of smoothie recipes and earthy broths, just to name a few, that honors the ingredients and transforms them into elixirs of utter bliss. The Flexitarian by Jack Moorcroft encapsulates the ideal of farm-to-table. Jack shares about family-friendly, budget-approved, and real-life food-conscious recipes for meals that pay homage to being a flexitarian by being adaptable, which is an awareness of marrying food with sustainability. She has recipes of a hearty Moroccan lamb curry, lamb and lentil burgers, and venison babursi that is perfect to make with the family. In this case, many cooks is a plus. Also, just to mention Jan Hendrik van der Westezen, which is our very first of African Michelin star chef, and his first cookbook in his series of seven, A Breath of French Air, which combines the flair of fine dining with the essence of nostalgia, with recipes of mospolikis to malva truffles, with smoked rosemary that articulates gastronomic excellence. The last of my cookbook picks that I really enjoyed bookmarking as well was the late Mamdora Sotole's 40 Years of Iconic Food, which embodies the vibrant cultural interlinking audacity of South Africa and how we celebrate one another through our love of food and the occasion of coming together. Jesse Burton wrote in The Miniaturist that food is where you find yourself. So we at Exclusive Books hope that you find your cookbook to match your craving that meets every occasion. What a little moonlight can do to you Ooh, what a little moonlight can do to you You're in love, your heart's a flutter and all day long You only stutter cause your parts Just will not utter the words I love you Ooh, what a little moonlight can do to you Wait a while till the little moonbeam comes peeping through. You get bold, you can resist her and all you say when you have kissed her with What a little moonlight can do. can do to you Wait a while Till a little moonbeam comes Peeping through You get bold You can't resist her And all you say When you have kissed her too What a little moonlight 
can do. That was What a Little Moonlight Can Do, sung by Gavin Minter. All our tracks in the show this month have a theme. Have you been able to guess what it is? If not, stay tuned. The answer is coming up after this last review. We welcome back Amy Heidenreth to share a debut novel she thinks we all need to hear about. It's called Go Away Birds, and it's written by Michelle Edwards and published by Mojaji Books. The first fiction book I would like to recommend is a book called Go Away Birds by Michelle Edwards. Now, this is written by a local debut author and published by Mojaji Books. And it's something I'm just so excited to recommend to people because it's that rare breed of book that is page-turning and that it has a gripping storyline. The story about Go Away Bird centers around the main character, Skye, who is a restaurateur living in Cape Town and she's living her dream life in that she's opened a trendy new restaurant, she is in a happy, creatively fulfilled marriage, and everything seems to be going well for her. But then something happens that causes her marriage and her business to implode very suddenly. And this sends her back to her childhood home in the Lofalt region, where she has to confront some of her past traumas from her recent life and from her childhood. So this book is incredible in the sense that it is lush with description about of Cape Town and Lofalt and beautiful South African scenes that we know so well, but we don't often get to encounter in popular fiction. At the same time, it's also very sumptuous. They, um, because Sky is a chef, there's a lot of cooking and a lot of scenes of her um, serving up delicious meals, and that is just such a joy to read. What Michelle Edwards does very beautifully is that she writes about the some of the more complex social issues in South Africa in its essence is quite light and quite centered around relationships. And that is just really refreshing and something that I hope to see a lot more of in South African fiction. So all in all, I'd say it's a type of book that I would recommend to someone who doesn't know what they want to read next, is perhaps battling to read a little bit during these stressful times, and just wants a bit of escape, this is the most perfect, delicious treat that will keep you occupied for a weekend or a wonderful few days. Thank you so much, Amy. Well, I always feel like we could talk about books forever. Our hour is almost up. I have to thank Mwandi for putting the show together so seamlessly and always with a warm smile and a ton of patience, especially with our current more challenging work-from-home logistics. And of course, the show would be nothing without all our reviewers and guest reviewers. Thanks so much, you guys. If you missed any of their reviews, the Book Choice podcast will be up on the FMR website very soon. And so we play out with The Shadow of Your Smile, sung by Track 5. Did you manage to guess what all the tracks have in common this month, thanks to our musical director, Rick Everett? Well, they're all proudly South African, just like we are. Have a great reading month, friends, and we'll be back with Book Choice again on the first Monday in September. Always full Start was far too high. Our star was too high. A tear kissed your lips, and so did I. And then so did I. Now when I remember spring, remember spring, and all the joy that love can bring.
shadow of your smile. Oh, I whisper little stars. Was far too high. Was far too high. A teardrop kissed your lips. That's all. And so did I. Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. If